0: Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we speak with environmental engineer Bronwyn Bell about the duties and challenges of being an environmental engineer working in the mining industry. We nearly lose our audio connection with Bronwyn early in the conversation, and so the audio is a little weak for about the first five minutes. But hang in there, the audio gets better, and the conversation is uniformly entertaining. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is Episode 111, Environmental Engineering, June 23rd, 2016. So, Carmen, how's the hop harvest going to be this year? Well, Jeff, it's
1: tough to call. You know, I got the creaking in my bones. It says it's going to be a little ominous, but I did see my shadow today, so I'm predicting uh, four or five barrels worth. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Bushels. Sorry, bushels. Look at me.
0: (laughs) And and do you have any idea what makes for a good hop growing season? Not a clue. I just show up when they tell me to and drink (laughs) beer. Well, that sounds good. I, I'm sure that with with all the concern about the, the weather changing, the world getting hotter or colder or whatever it's doing, that somehow must change uh, the hop harvest. But uh, I, all I know is as long as, as the, the beer is available, then my worries are few.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. And I, I would <laughs> totally go to learn, you know, and attend their lectures that uh, this farm puts on about hop growing. But they got to stop holding them at like 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon so I can leave
0: work and actually get there. You mean they're not le- letting you off of work at two in the afternoon to go uh, drink beer? <sighs> yeah, my boss
1: have no problem with it, but the upper op- upper managements would maybe have something to say about that.
0: Yeah, I can I can see whether they they prefer their high priced engineers not uh, not heading off in the middle of the afternoon.
1: What I should do is just take an eval board with me and see if it works in the uh, high humidity environment of a brewery. Ooh,
0: that's a good idea.
1: Yeah. See if any deposits, you know, from the malts, crushed up grains in the air affect performance, hurt efficiency, because we typically run our circuits just open air. They're not in a case or anything.
0: I, I think you can make a case for environmental testing.
1: Yeah, it's just a more, you know, robust reliability, <laughs> uh, you know, long-term burn-in test. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I think uh, in these days, we're certainly all more environmentally aware than uh, – Uh, say we were as a society 30 or 40 years ago, but it is the fact that certain engineers specialize in planning, designing, and managing projects associated with environmental protection. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about the field of environmental engineering. Uh, And to help us in that conversation, uh, our guest for this episode is Bronwyn Bell, an environmental engineer from Australia with extensive experience in the mining and resources sector. Bronwyn, welcome to the Engineering Commons.
2: Hi, thanks. Good to be here.
0: Happy to have you on. Whoa.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just dropped the microphone.
1: <laughs> all right. The introduction's got, all she needs. No,
2: huh? It's got this long cable, and I just bumped it. <laughs> I've been trying to hold the cable out because I was really worried that it kept bumping the microphone.
3: (laughs) That's awesome.
2: Good. Excellent start. Wonderful. (laughs) So take it again, from. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. Welcome. (laughs) Great to be here.
0: Happy to have you on. (laughs) So uh, Bronwyn, uh, I understand you go by Bron. Is it okay if we call you that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's quicker and shorter and easier, so...
0: Okay, so Bron, (laughs) what got you interested in engineering?
2: Uh, So, one of those career things that they actually do in high school, really, is is what kind of happened. So, I was always quite good at maths and science, Mm -hmm. um, and I dismayed my mother and didn't become a third-generation accountant, Um, and (laughs) refused to do accounting in high school, so... um, we had, yeah, a career festival and I forget the exact slogan but it was something about the kind of paying out scientists but how then engineers were the practical kind of people who solved all the problems in the world and, and built things and made things work and that kind of appealed to me and I said, oh, if you're good at maths and science, you might as well do this. And for some reason I thought all oh, that extra time at uni wasn't really that much extra and if I was going to uni anyway, I might as well stick it out. Mm-hmm go the whole thing and and get an engineering degree so yeah so since i was about 15 i kind of wanted to be an engineer i thought it sounded cool
0: (laughs) well that's wonderful and and so uh, what led you into the field of environmental engineering
2: um yeah so i didn't initially really care what part of engineering I was going to go into, Mm -hmm. Um, and again, they'd probably do the same thing over there, but a lot of the unis hold fairs, and so one of the the universities in Brisbane, because I actually grew up in um, uh, Queensland, over Mm -hmm. on the east coast of Australia, um, was holding a bit of a fair to um, go explain what civil engineering was, and um, so I trundled off to that um, with a whole heap of girls from my school. Mm-hmm. And we had to build bridges. I'm sure <laughs> it's very common, except ours weren't made out of um because I think you guys did them out of pasta or something. But ours were out of ice cream sticks. Is is sort of we call them paddle pop sticks here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a bridge building exercise, and you had to use super glue and try and make the biggest bridge and the best bridge and the strongest bridge and all these sorts of things. And um. I was year twelve, and the super glue bottle sort of exploded on my hands. <laughs> and I managed to um, get my fingers quite convincingly stuck together, and the University electron's infinite wisdom thought that it's okay. We'll put it in acetone later or something, and we'll get it off. So, how about you be the only one who touches the super glue for the rest of the class, and you just <laughs> hold on to it for the rest of the class? Um, and so, by the time it was over, my hands were quite convincingly stuck together. Yeah. Um, and then all the chemical things they threw at it didn't work. Ooh. And then they trundled me off and I was about to go into the doctor's surgery to get my fingers scalpeled apart. Ooh. <laughs> I got freaked out that I was going to lose my fingerprints forever. Um, and so then I rang up the poisons hotline. You <laughs> and-
3: would have been a heck of a bank robber.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but not on my – yeah, it was on my right hand too, of course. So I didn't really do much. But um, in the end, they suggested I just leave my hand near cooking for a couple of hours, uh, which I did. And finally, it all came off. And uh, that's when I decided I wouldn't be a civil engineer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Adam has so many times where he can't type up show notes because he's got super glue, oh, just stick his yeah. hands together.
3: Yeah, it's a real common problem.
2: Yeah, he, he just kind of
3: mashes the keyboard.
2: Yeah. And um, so um, Queensland, so the state I grew up in, it's um one of the more dominant mining parts of Australia, mm-hmm. and um you know coal um, and a lot of other you know raw materials come out of Queensland. And it's um, mining's quite important there, so I kind of figured I wanted to be part of that because it was quite big and interesting and exciting. Um. And my family largely was more sort of from the, the farming side of things. So um, on my mum's side, they were all accountants. On my dad's side, they were all farmers. And so my dad was a um, pineapple farmer and my uncles and my grandfather were all cattle and wheat farmers and, and those sorts of things. And I figured, well, if you can't grow stuff, then you just have to dig stuff. So um, I wanted to go work in mining and I couldn't choose between mining engineering or environmental engineering.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then... At the time, so you have this big process that happens at the end of um, high school where you have to pick your university courses um, and you, you sort of put them in and then you have your ranking options and then if you don't get your first choice there, then look at your second choice and your third choice and they sort of work through that. And I was owing an owing between bioengineering engineering and environmental engineering until the, the day before it was due and in the end I went, well, coal prices are doing really miserable at the moment so I might as well go for environmental because um, if the, the mining industry falls over in Queensland, at least I can still get a job with local government doing environmental engineering. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's pretty much how I ended up doing environmental engineering. And then I went off to uni to study that.
0: So. Well, wonderful.
2: I was always pretty determined I would work in mining, though, if, if the, the price of commodities ever improved again. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Right. So your your adventures with civil engineering and super glue aside, you know, the the civil engineers are are into a lot of earth moving and and uh structure building, I guess less uh yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's somewhat different than uh you know, certainly mining. Uh but but I know that environmental engineers have to worry about you know, uh water runoff and and uh, uh those sort of things. So so what's uh what's the difference between environmental engineering and civil engineering
2: um a lot of it is just environmental engineering you tend to deal with the things that people don't really want to think about so mm-hmm. um all your wastes and emissions and things that stink and smell bad and <laughs> just you know the parts of modern society I think people want to forget about so um, As part of uni, I, I think I pretty much went to most landfills that existed in southeast Queensland and all the wastewater treatment plants and all the potable water treatment plants and ran around at contaminated sites and <laughs> just <laughs> anything to sort of do with bad smelling discharges and emissions and and those sorts of things. So um, mm-hmm. I guess trying to use engineering solutions to to minimise the impact of – yeah, all our discharges, emissions, and, and how we affect uh, the world. So, yeah.
0: Right. So, I, so, as a mechanical engineer, I can study within the School of Mechanical Engineering. I can be a design expert, or I could be a, a structures expert, a thermo thermodynamics expert, or a hydraulics expert. Um,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: So, are, are there specialties like this within the environmental engineering field?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, um, you'll have people who spend their whole lives just dealing with you know wastewater treatment and then um you'll have other people who'll just look at things to do with like air emissions or point source discharges from stacks and um those sorts of things or drainage and um surface water runoff issues and hydrology or um it just really depends what you want to get into and what um sector you end up working in um and i guess i worked in mining that's Pretty much only ever worked in mining um, and so I'm much more sort of a generalist broad. I didn't – to be honest, I don't really <laughs> – I don't ever want to become a specialist in any one thing. Uh, I'm much more of a, a generalist but you do get people who end up spending their whole lives in one particular area and they'll become an expert in that and they're the sorts – you know, they might often end up in consulting and, um, you know, get called in by bigger companies to come solve specific technical problems.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. would you say it's that uh, the mining industry in Australia is the predominant employer of environmental engineers
2: um, I actually wouldn't have thought so I think um, local government and um, government council and those sorts of things okay. would actually employ a lot as well so um, mining's actually mining in terms of things like um, net exports and, and that sort of thing for Australia is really huge and, and a lot of things yeah. in mining are really huge Um but it's not really that much of an employer in terms of actual employment numbers in Australia. It would be, I would have thought, only around about 1%. Um, So it's very, you know, capital intensive. So it doesn't employ a lot of people, Um, whereas, um, you know, government, I think something like one in eight Australians works in public service or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... A lot of the people that I went to uni with ended up working for either um, consulting firms or government is a local government's so a very big employer as well. And then things like um, utility companies, so um, particularly like all your big water um, utility providers and water corporation and, and all those sorts of ones. So,
0: hmm. yeah. And so when you're going through school, uh, you talked about liking being more of a generalist. Uh, Yes. do you, do you just get an assortment of these various, you know, a little wastewater and a little air pollution, a little, you know, a little this and a little that, and then they let you, once you've graduated, decide what you want to specialize in, or are you actually specializing while you're still in school?
2: Um, well, the way uh, engineering degree worked is your, your first few years are, are just your core subjects and there's a lot of um, engineering maths. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and all those sorts of fun ones to go through. Um, and then in third year, you, you tended to pick um, electives more in your specialized area. So, I did actually look to at um, working predominantly in contaminated site re- remediation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I did a, a few things in Um, a few electives in that area and then um, in your final year, you had to um, look at what your thesis topic would be. Um, So, again, you you sort of towards your your end of your course, you got to to, um, try and specialise or focus a bit more in those sorts of areas that you wanted to eventually um, move into. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think a lot of it then, you know, depending on where you ended up working, you would naturally start Spending a lot more time working on that particular area, and then having to, as part of your your role, just getting very good at that area and becoming more experienced and specialised in that area. Maybe go back and um, do some postgrad studies as well if you you felt like it. But. Mm-hmm. I've got an interesting story for you guys, which I thought you might enjoy. For well,
1: sure. Um, no, we don't, we're not going for interesting podcasts no, here. Just, just keep it to yourself. Cancel <laughs> the
3: story.
2: Because um, one of the, the cool things about environmental engineering, because so, I went to uni in Brisbane, um, we had a big brewery that was right in Brisbane. Um, It's called the Forex Brewery and so every Australian who's listening who's not from Queensland now has just face-planted and just (laughs) go, what, Forex? You're kidding. um, So um, another thing that I thought would be kind of cool to look at at uni was um, how you can try and make industry a bit more like an ecosystem, I guess. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, in ecosystems you don't really have waste, so the waste product from one living organism becomes the input for something else and so – Looking at that, and so how you could set up sort of industrial parks to um not have waste because they're just moving on to the next company that needs to use it, and so breweries are actually really good, so I had to do a case study actually on the Forex brewery, and so for my university degree, I had to uh, <laughs> go out and make frequent field trips and um check out what was happening at a brewery all the time so that was was kind of cool as an engineering student to do that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that is cool what
1: sort of things were they doing to be more environmentally friendly was it kind of like giving their spent grains to farmers for cattle feed or yeah like solar so power? All,
2: yeah so all that sort of stuff so um pretty much every waste stream that that worked out someone they could sell it to for profit <laughs> um, but so all their spent grains ended up going out for cattle fodder so um again queensland has a big cattle um industry so um just west of Brisbane is where that went, and then in Australia we have Vegemite. I don't think Americans tend to like Vegemite, but um,
3: My so- does. <laughs> I don't I think I've ever had it before.
2: It's it's wonderful, and you're missing out. Um, but you don't spread it as thick as Nutella, right? It's just really oh, thin.
1: That's good to know because I spread <laughs> Nutella pretty thick.
2: <laughs> so, um, or, like Vegemite's just made from yeast, and so all the you know the yeast excess from the brew used to go up to the Vegemite the factory and, and then they'd end up with um, the excess um, carbon dioxide and that used to go off to the Coca-Cola factory and, um, you know, looking at all their different wastewater treatment plant um, processes and how they um, then were able to reuse water and, and those sorts of things. So the, the idea was pretty much that they didn't want to have any actual waste products. Um, they didn't quite get there but they got really, really close um, that then had to go off to landfill or or to become waste everything that they didn't then need went into some other process with someone else. So yeah, that's cool.
0: So as your, your university project, were you suggesting ideas that they were taking on or are you just analyzing what they were already doing?
2: Um, A lot of it was analysing what they were already doing except they were having some um, issues with their water treatment system at the time and uh, Mm -hmm. they hadn't quite sized it well enough for the volumes that they (laughs) were going through. So (laughs) um, uh, I think the popularity of beer, because Forex is quite an old one in Australia, um, Mm -hmm. grew a lot and um, they were really in this tight inner city little area and um, they were having some issues with their water treatment which was upsetting the council if they couldn't get it sorted. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. That sounds like a great project.
2: Yeah, all engineering students should do something like that.
1: (laughs) At a brewery specifically or a company in general?
2: (laughs) Uh, Both, yeah. And then um, so in my – that was my third year project. um, And then in my fourth year project, that's when we did our actual honours thesis, Mm-hmm. Um, and I was optimistic that the mining sector would pick up again. <laughs> um, so uh, I actually went off and uh, did a project in a part of Queensland. that's quite um, an old gold mining area, and um, I looked at um, contamination of water in um, surface water systems from old gold mining activities and um, trying to work out what um, – sort of the water quality was and um, what uptake of certain contaminants there were in different plants um, mm-hmm. in the catchment and, and that sort of thing so is trying it,
3: to is the primary concern heavy metals
2: yeah, yeah. I looked a, a little bit a um, fair bit of focus on arsenic actually mm-hmm. um, and trying to it was quite good fun so going out to different creek systems and and trying to work out where the um, sources were coming from so trying to trace back concentrations and and work out um you know what activities had occurred there in the past and i guess this area in queensland that had been gold mining took off there i think in the 1850s so it was quite a long time ago um and you know so some of these historic workings like no one had worked them for a hundred odd years and, and trying to work out previous land uses and stuff and what waste may or may not have been in different areas so um yeah, it was good fun um, when I was out sampling some of the, the, the waters. You know, you'd be in public parks and as well and, and people would come up to you because you look kind of funky in your, your gear with all your monitoring equipment and um, people would ask you what's going on and get a bit panicky um, <laughs> potentially about <laughs> whether or not there was something um, a little bit unsafe or going on or if the ducks in the pond were going to die and, and those sorts of things. So. Do you ever
3: have any fun with these people?
2: Um, no, I tried to usually keep them calm because I was a couple of hundred kilometers away from home, and I didn't want the locals to get a bit antsy. But um, we're looking for
3: Ebola. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I could have had a lot of fun, but um, no, it probably wouldn't have helped my university studies if I'd made the front page of the paper by <laughs> upsetting a whole town.
3: Let us know if you feel a little bit itchy. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, so you've, uh, you've mentioned that you sort of concentrated in the area of mining, uh, but even that field is fairly large. There's all kinds of different mines. What, what kind of mines have you worked in and, and what kind of problems do you encounter in these various mines?
2: Yeah. So um, after you knew I was quite lucky. I got a, a job eventually with a rather large multinational mining company um and so I've worked in lots of different types of mines so um you know during uni I actually did back work um spent a couple of months working in an underground and open cut coal mine um in Queensland so in in um Queensland inland of Mackay it's quite a big um coal mining sector um in there so I lived a couple of hours inland from the coast um and worked in an underground coal mine, which had some old, you know, open-cut areas as well. I spent – worked at a couple of coal mines, but um, spent a bit of time working in a diamond mine. That's really kind of fun. Um,
3: Industrial diamonds or gem-quality diamonds? Or
2: both. uh, Both. So you make a lot of your good money from your gem quality, but the bulk of your diamonds um, are actually just industrial-grade. Diamonds, and
0: so is the rule. You get to keep what you find.
2: <laughs> no, it's actually um, the the diamond mine that I worked at. So it's in the Kimberley region of Australia, and um, they they make pink diamonds, and they're actually quite famous for some of the different color diamonds that they get. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of security actually at a diamond mine because it's a, a little bit funny to think about, but you know you move hundreds of millions of tons of dirt. And you end up with this this product, which is a really high-value product that kind of goes out in suitcases mm-hmm. um, in like a little lear jet or hand-locked to someone's wrist or something. But um, so um, – You said you know, in
3: the K- Kimberley region?
2: Yeah, the Kimberley. So it's in the, the northwest of um, Western Australia.
3: Is that is that where uh, Kimberlite gets its name?
2: Um, I don't know. <laughs> actually
3: it's It's a kimberlite yeah yeah because i i want to say that was the big thing whenever they find kimberlite they find diamonds and
2: yeah that's that's yeah i don't know if that's why the kimberley region is called that it's
3: It's, a particular stone
2: yeah it's where you get your your diamond um it's like your ore body Mm -hmm. but um because I, I would have thought that the Kimberley region of Australia would have been called the Kimberley region for a much longer time than the discovery of diamonds in that region. So, um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, but all sorts of things like the Kimberley process and, and those which are associated with diamonds are um, yeah all named from Kimberlite, but... Um, yeah, so, you know, you have a lot of security guards at a diamond mine and, and um, they tell you things like if you see a stone, no, you don't get to pick it up and there's cameras <laughs> around everywhere. And, um, you know, I got to go into – so you, I don't know how familiar you guys are with mining, but, um, you know, sometimes – so that's
1: got to be a pretty, <laughs> pretty good documentary.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah um, your ore for diamonds kind of looks a bit boring because it kind of looks like gravel. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really look like diamonds at all. It's just kind of like gravel and it has to go through your process plant. And um, so I did occasionally get to go into the process plant, which is where you get um, something out the other end that actually does look like diamonds. Um, and whenever we went in there, you had to have your own security guard. So you had like literally one-on-one a person next to you, making sure that you couldn't steal any diamonds. And um, handcuffed to <laughs> uh, you had to stay within i 'm pretty sure a meter of them um, and I used to cause a few problems because I was a female, um, and there weren't that many female security guards on site and, um, and um, one of the requirements was as you left the processing plant you had to it was kind of like a bingo thing you had to rattle the tin and get a different colored ball, and then depending on what color ball it was, it depended what sort of search you had on the way out of the process plant to make sure that you weren't smuggling diamonds. Um, out of the process plant, so you're always hoping for a certain colour because um, that just meant that you got patted down or they checked your shoes or, or something like that. But, um, you know, so one time when I was coming out, it took them an hour and a half to find a female security guard who could actually do the search. So you just had to sort of sit there and just wait and that was your work day gone. <laughs> <My>. <laughs> and then my boss got very angry at me because I was so late back to the office. But um, There's not really you much know. you can do at that point. <laughs> at that point. Right. <laughs> no so um we did get staff discounts though on diamonds so that was quite nice
1: excellent um
2: yeah uh so i bought oh, enough to make
1: christmas <laughs> gifts for everybody you knew.
3: <laughs> are you sir are you serious
2: yeah yeah we got staff discounts seriously
3: for for uncut stones
2: no no, no they had to be cut so um ah. the way it worked is um so part of the it's the downstream processing requirement that they have here so um you know the business did have also um, some diamond sales, and, and um, all the people in the company um, that had the diamond sales sort of sales guys come around with their little suitcases every now and then, and um, you could buy diamonds and you got a you know a discount. So one of the perks of working for a mining company um, got cheaper diamonds. Uh, yeah, so that was diamond mining. It was in you know a spec- spectacular part of australia so i don't know if any of you guys ever get to come here but um the kimberley is really quite beautiful so So when you
1: were in the the mines when you were working at the mines what was your day-to-day like you know did you have a a tool belt and you were doing like a little fossil (laughs) dig to uh, do some statistical analysis or were you looking at the broader picture making sure you know they weren't dumping anything into streams or
2: Yes, so um, when I was there at the time, we were looking to move from um, open cut mining down into underground. So um, we'd had alluvial mining originally. Um, So um, I'll tell you, there's an Aboriginal story. So, you know, Australia's got a lot of um, history in Aboriginal history Um, and so there's a big ridge line and um, their story was that the barramundi used to jump over the ridge line and as they jumped over the barramundi would um, clip the top of the ridge line and that was what the sparkly rocks were as it was all the scales of um, the barramundi as they jumped over the ridge and um, so originally the mining that was done up there was just like alluvial um, mining of diamonds and you know that causes a lot of land clearing Um, And so then you have to go in and sort of work out how you're going to rehab and um, remediate all that surface disturbance. You said
1: alluvial mining?
2: Yeah. So you're looking at the alluvial. Is that only
1: cutting the top of the mountain off and, you know?
2: No, the alluvial section of your creek system, so just your um, surface. It's almost like, um, you know, in the olden days, if you've seen photos of how they used to do gold mining, where they used to go to creek systems and river systems and just sort of pan for gold. So it's… it's really quite. Um, uh, it's easier mining, I guess, because you don't have to dig much. <laughs> yeah,
1: but you got to wear overalls. Um, <laughs> so, speaking
2: an <in> accent. <laughs> yeah, surface mining. So, um, and then once you know, you sort of you pick off the easy fruit. So you've done your alluvial mining, and, and then they did open cut mining. So when I was there they were were rehabbing the alluvials and heavily into the open cut mine so that's when you get your really massive holes um in the ground and and moving you know um I think at that stage we'd moved over 100 million tons of waste rock and um you end up with a large hole and then beside it you've got a very large waste rock dump um and so one of the issues that we had was um, we worked out that the the geology of the soil there had actually caused um, neutral mine drainage Um, and so when it rained, you would get this um, white precipitate forming out and um, so we had to sort of look at, well, what was happening there and how could we um, try and neutralise or buffer out or um, minimise the effects on the environment of um, the waste rock um, and then the other big thing that was happening at the time was we were trying to get approvals from the state government to go into the underground phase of the mine. So, um, you know, once you've, you've mined as much as you can economically out of an open cut, you might actually have an ore body then that extends down deeper. So um, at that stage we were just doing um, environmental approvals for the underground and there was some like an exploratory sort of shaft to sort of... Um, help get the underground going. So a lot of what I did at that stage was actually um, trying to deal with government approvals, looking at, well, how could we um, design this mine so that we've got lower greenhouse gas emissions or how are we going to manage the risks associated with neutral mine drainage or um, how are we going to rehab all these waste rock dumps to um, leave something that sort of Um, is self-sustaining and is going to cause a long-term legacy um, for the area. There are a lot of um, natural springs in the area as well. So you've got to look at the hydrogeology and um, to do your underground mining, you'll have to do some dewatering. So what does that then mean for the natural springs in the area? And inevitably there would be um, also Aboriginal sacred sites is the other thing that um, often happens. Mm-hmm. and um
1: i could see that getting getting ugly in a few ways and you got the human element there too to deal with not just making sure the water's clean
2: yeah so um and the um the the values i, I guess that the aboriginal people had for um some of these areas as well might be a little bit different so um even things like when we we're looking at um, rehab designs and, you know, the species mix that you would end up putting in your rehab. So there's um, certain plants that the Aboriginal people valued for bush tucker or bush medicine or um, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, needing to make sure that their requirements were also getting met as well as, um, you know, having an ecosystem that's self-sustaining after mm-hmm. can survive for, you know, for forever. Um, so that was sort of diamond mining. Uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so how much uh, standard procedure can there be? I mean, obviously, there's with what you're mining, you know, requires different regulations and stuff. But say two diamond mines, you know, even just located a few miles apart or a couple tens of miles apart, like the geology could be so different that yeah, one, is there really a one size solution you can just apply? Or
2: uh, no, no, you got know, to treat I, I everything I separately. So. Yeah, no mines created equal. Um, so my most recent work, um, so until recently I worked in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. So um, I actually looked it up. So the Pilbara is nearly as big as Texas, right? Okay. Um, just, I thought that was an interesting little comparison. So, um, And it's a, a big iron ore, um, you know, producing region. Mm-hmm. And um, we had 15 different iron ore mines in the Pilbara. And um, they're not at all the same. And so you would have um, some mines where, you know, one of your big issues is the ore body interacts with uh, massive underground aquifer. And so you're having to dewater and move hundreds of megalitres of water a day to get it out of the way. So um, you can do um, your open pit mining. And, um, of course, then you've got issues, okay, so what then happens and what's the impact of that drawdown and um, what ecosystems might be dependent on that drawdown or um, um, what do you then do with the water because that, that volume of water is far more water than you could ever possibly need in your process plant. Um, so how do you you manage and dispose of that water in a, a way that has the least environmental impact? Um, Then we had other mine sites which, you know, would be like 150 kilometres away um, but still in the Pilbara region because it's quite large, (laughs) Um, which Mm -hmm. didn't have enough water and so you're having to, um, you know, bring water in for those sites and then, you know, depending on geology, some of the sites would have… You
3: would would actually truck it in?
2: No, pipe. Pipe, You'd you'd have like big pipe networks. So, um, yeah, so um, at one of our ports for example um you know there was a 200 kilometre long pipe um that used to bring water in because um Jeez. you know you'd, ha- you'd have parts of the Pilbara where there's, there's not those big underground aquifers and so they've got issues because they don't have enough water and then there's other parts where you've got too much water so it's trying to like across the region how can you um better balance um, water because um, it's a pretty important part of your processing <laughs> and um Having enough water for things like dust control and dust suppression and um,
3: yeah i I have a really entry level and dumb question, so I mean, Adam and I are from Minnesota, which is a big mining area as well. When you remove whole sections of rock and extract the minerals, what do you end up doing with? you know diamond mine's a good one because I'm sure the majority of what you're digging up isn't diamonds. It's oh, it's, yeah. the under, it's the underlying ore. Does yep. that just get put in piles nearby?
2: Yeah. It, it does depend on the type of mine as well. So, mm-hmm. um, and again, so I've worked in both open cut and underground. So um, if it's an underground mine, um environmentally there's a lot of things that are a little bit nicer about some underground mines um so you don't have to remove all that waste rock so i guess Mm -hmm. the idea with underground mining is you go in and you just remove the ore um uh, which is good um but then you can get issues at the land surface around they call it subsidence so you know if you, Mm -hmm. you remove enough ore that the land sort of um at the top will start to crack and move a bit. but um, And, you know, you can go to sections of um, Queensland, for example, where we've got lots of um, underground coal mines, and the way you remove the coal underneath um, in large sections, what sort of happens at the surface, um, because you might be removing, say, four to six metres of a seam, you sort of get this wave effect ends up happening on the surface because um, you've had to leave the pillars
0: Mm -hmm.
2: um, in some sections of the coal mine and it sort of, you know, moves the ground above um a little bit but um in open cut um if it's a bulk commodity product so if it's if it's one like coal or um iron ore you're removing a lot of material um but you'll still end up you know some of our mines in the Pilbara would have had um say four to one strip ratio so um, for every one tonne of ore, you might have to move, say, four tonnes of waste rock. Um, if it was a better one, it might be closer to one-to-one. But um, one of the coal mines I worked at, we had a 15-to-one at one stage. So for every one tonne of coal, you had to move 15 tonnes of waste rock. Um, so you do end up with these quite large waste rock dumps or overburden um, dumps, but... Um, I guess that's part of the the challenge with mining is how do you then leave something behind that's not a great big dirty hole. So um, one of the things that we used to spend a fair bit of time on, well, how do you plan for closure and how can you shape this or make this look like a landform that blends in with the surrounding environment and make sure that it's stable over the long term and it's not going to erode and it's not going to cause um, sedimentation downstream and it's got – because you can get different soil properties as well. So um, how do you make sure Mm -hmm. that the soil that's at the surface is – Not hostile to plants and hence um, we'll be able to sustain um, good vegetation cover um, and plants will be able to establish in it how do you make sure that um, you can get the right sort of amount of water infiltration so that your plants um, will survive. But then in some cases, if you've got um, acid mine drainage, um, which I'm not sure if Are you guys familiar with that? But it's when you can have, um, like, you'll end up with leaching of, like, acidic um, water. Like Um,
3: alkali minerals in the water?
2: Yeah, so if you've got high-well sulfur um, in the the soil, you can end up making um, acid leach out. And so, you know, um, and one of the other things that can happen, which is the problem we had at the Diamond Mine, is you might have that acid forming, but then there might actually be enough carbonate or other material in the soil that it'll, um, sort of neutralise it, but then what you'll end up with is always precipitates coming out instead, um, which then can cause um, toxicity issues for um, things downstream. So um, in some cases with these massive waste rock dumps, what you're actually trying to do is not let water infiltrate because what you're trying to do is shed the water as fast as possible because um, you, you don't want the water to get in and then touch um, material that has this sulfur um in it because that will then cause acid to get leached out so um you know depending on things like the climate that you're in um the geology that you've got um the nature of the mining whether or not it's open cart um you know the the actual issues you're dealing with and what you might be trying to achieve long term um will be quite different so you know we had um I've worked in mines in tropical parts of Australia um, where you just get suddenly a cyclone will come and there's heaps and heaps of rain <laughs> um, and you're trying to deal with the fact that you had 106 mils overnight and your drainage system's held up and, and that was really nice um, and everything's flooded. But um, And then, you know, I've been to mines where it, in a good year we'll get 30 mils of rain um, and so you've got the complete opposite um, – you know, in in my job. And, again, I think I was quite lucky that I worked for a large international company. So um, I got to travel around to all our different mine sites around the world. Um, so I went over to one in Canada um, and I was there in September and October, um, which I had hoped wouldn't actually be a cold time of the year, but as it turns out, <laughs> it actually does get really cold in Canada. And so I'd, I'd left the Pilbara and it was, you know, I don't know, 35 or whatever um, here, and then you go over there and um, there was snow, which I initially found very exciting because snow. Um, (laughs) And so they were, you know, dealing with the fact that it was so cold there that um, everything froze. And so they had huge issues dealing with um, just uh, trying to not have things freeze, um, trying to deal with so much, they had to have huge amounts of hydrocarbons on site just for heating requirements, and just all these other issues um, that were just so dramatically different from when you're working. In, you know, so it was the same commodity; they were still making iron ore. We were making iron ore, but their ore body was um, completely different as well, and and the product they made at the end because they did some processing. Um, you know, so depending on, yeah, no mines created equal. So you've really got to understand what, what's the, you know, the all body characteristics, what's the climate you're in, um, what's your mining method, uh, what are your nearby sensitive receptors, you know, so um, you might have a really important Aboriginal heritage site right next door or you might have a local community next door or you might have... Um, You know, some of our operations were off the east coast of Australia and so they're next door to the Great Barrier Reef and so, you know, you've got all these different things that you might have to um, be looking at and considering to try and work out, well, what are the risks that my emissions can or discharges might have and how do I have to manage and control those and um, reduce the impacts of that.
3: Do you find in your field that people tend to specialize based on uh, maybe um – certain environmental and regional conditions? Um, Somebody might typically only work in the tropical regions or somebody might only work in the more arid regions because they understand the problem set.
2: Yeah. So if you worked in consulting, so a lot of um, environmental engineers I think do end up working for large consulting houses Um, and you will find some of that, so um, you'll get very used to dealing with um, certain issues. Um, not so much for things like if you're just doing treatment systems. So you know, a wastewater treatment—it's mm-hmm. kind of like a wastewater treatment plant and a potable water treatment plant's kind of a potable water treatment plant. Um, but if you're um, dealing with a certain other things yes but um a big impact actually is legislation as well so um the legislative framework that sits around environment varies dramatically um by different region. um and so here in australia for example it's all it's predominantly state-based there is some commonwealth um, legislation as well and so you've actually kind of got to get a little bit familiar with what um your local legal framework is as well. Um, and then, yeah, it just sort of varies. I am I always liked going to see different things because it's amazing the different ideas you can get. So, you know, if you look at the challenges that we had to face at some sites because of a shortage of water or too much water or too much rain or not enough rain or, um, you know, geology that caused acid mine drainage versus um, mm-hmm. We had one site that had um, issues because we had so much calcrete. Um, and then, you know, when you go to different places, you get different ideas about different things. And so I think that's why I had a tendency to want to be a generalist rather than specialises because I like seeing different things and the different challenges people face and how they respond to those and then whether or not there's something you can then learn from that and apply it in a slightly different context to give you a better outcome. Because um, if you keep doing the same thing or always follow the same sort of solution or the same sort of path, you'll never you won't necessarily improve or you might be missing out on some opportunity to get a a better outcome. So you know another thing I guess that um, makes different minds different um so depending on the processing requirements of your mines um some of our mines had massive tailings dams because i guess as well as you know these great big waste rock dumps um that you can have as part of the the processing of the ore you might also end up with large volumes of um tailings material getting generated as well but again tailings,
3: this would be a liquid
2: yeah so it's it's kind of like a slurry um okay. And um, But certain ore bodies, just because of the nature of the ore body, there'll, there'll be no requirement for wet processing. So you, you won't end up with a tailings facility at some mine sites, but then other mine sites will have tailings. And then, you know, depending on the, the commodity you're um, dealing with, the, the chemical characteristics of your tailings are quite different as well. So, you know, in iron ore, your, your tailings um, typically aren't Um, that hazardous um but uh if you deal with um because i used to work at a bauxite mine as well Mm -hmm. and so um you know bauxite you then have to get it refined it has to become alumina which then has to become aluminium and so um
3: well that's a joke
2: sorry (laughs) what do you mean that's a joke what Uh,
3: uh, do you say alumina
2: yeah, what, it,
3: what? Oh, oh so, so, sorry, I thought oh. you were making a, a language joke where it's first it becomes aluminum, then it becomes aluminum.
2: No, alumina is different. <laughs> it it yes, is yes, aluminum. I, it's not, well, what do you, you guys don't call it aluminum, do you? No. They don't call um,
3: aluminum. Aluminum. Yes. Yeah, so no, I, 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 I picked it up a second this. after you said it. I was <laughs> <laughs>
2: So you have to take it from the, the nice little red dirt colour thing, bauxite, turn it into a nice little white powdery um, alumina thing at a refinery and then you take it to the smelter and then it becomes a nice little silver aluminium um, after it's <laughs> to the smelter. Um,
3: <laughs> at, w- at, at what temperature Fahrenheit does that happen?
4: Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> uh, do you know, um, I once at uni, um, we were – doing some research and we came across a textbook that was from America and I nearly fell off my chair because we we're going through this textbook it was for physics and you mixed units right and so it had like square feet inches or something and i was like what is this how does that work
3: uh, inch <laughs> foot might, parts, i think i
2: don't know it was it was a mixture it wasn't you know like we would just use meters cubed because that makes sense um and it was it you mixed things and i don't know
3: I think that's all so mo- I think all modern U.S. physics textbooks almost exclusively use metric, oh, unless okay. I'm crazy. I'm pretty sure that's the case now.
2: Okay, that's good. I think you should just jump on board with metric. Hey,
0: <laughs> but all the industry providers have all their spec sheets in in the old you know English units. So, uh, oh no, it's, it's there, sometimes it takes some really dedicated uh, <laughs> unit conversion to get to something that you can recognize. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then how you got many, all how, the people who have the conversion factors in their head, and they, they, you know, gut feel, and yeah. How
3: many? How many hogshead per cord is this? Or uh, if if you drop a mass of thirty five stones, uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know. um, Do
3: you have a problem, Brian, Brian, finding
1: uh, imperial farad (laughs) capacitors instead of just the standard metric ones?
3: They're (laughs) still imperial. I still don't understand what a difference between a metric ton and a ton is. An E. I think. (laughs) T-O-N-N-E. E E
1: E is a constant. It's (laughs) 2.71, so it's about three pounds.
3: Come on, man. Short tons, long tons.
2: Um, yes. Yeah, so back to tailings. Um, sorry.
3: <laughs> no, I find this fascinating. and I, I once got a bid on a project uh, up in Canada where they were working on uh, uh, tailings for the uh, oil sands. Oh. And I got the impression like that could be some toxic, toxic stuff.
2: Yeah, oil sands is in a whole new category of uh, environmental fun.
3: Yeah. so i mean they were they were quite concerned <laughs> yeah. with where the uh evaporants ended up yeah so is it i mean uh, in the tailings that you're dealing with is is that a major concern or is it is it you you just you put the slurry out in the field, let the water uh, evaporate, and you've got a solid
2: um again, it really depends on where you are so the the tailings that we had in the pilbara um mm-hmm. the the materials largely benign so it's almost just like you're dealing with almost a um you you have issues with uh trying to get it i guess to settle and recover enough water and put water back through your process plant if you can and then how are you going to rehabilitate it at the end um what's and, the, si-
3: and since and since you worked in a bunch of different mines is this um primarily in diamonds or uh, uh that you have that you have large tailing ponds?
2: N- no it's uh, not so much commodity based it would be more what so some iron ore mines for example won't have tailings at all whereas others okay. will have large volumes of it um and then depending on whether or not you like hematite or magnetite as well um you'll get different volumes okay um so so a
3: simple question I, I, no I,
2: not at all <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> but in general iron ore tailings won't really be that toxic but if you deal with things like um, aluminium, you know, because of the, the chemical processes that have to happen in order to eventually end up with aluminium, you know, mm-hmm. the the red mud, so they'll call it red mud, um, There, it can have issues with its um, pH because um, it will be very high. So um, mm-hmm. you might be up, you know, like 11, 12, 13 um, and so you're having to deal with um, quite different issues in that case. So, in that case, it's not really just about um, the water and the volume and the, the landform and the, the material. It's, it's also about, well, what's the pH doing? Um, so, and then um, I've never personally worked in, in a gold mine. I've been and visited quite a few, but again, they've got different issues again because gold processing is um, again quite different. So, um, yeah, it varies a lot. I guess yeah, it's that's. I guess for an environmental engineer, I I highly recommend mining because you'll never be bored, and there's just so (laughs) much. There's so much variety, and so you can you can learn something about um, one site and one mine and one commodity, and then you can jump on and you can go to a different one, and then if you ever get into smelting or refining, um, again that that's like a whole new kettle of fish, and um, you'll work in some amazing places as well and you know some really remote um, places. So yeah, there's no chance of boredom at all. Right. Unless you want to go work for local government, <laughs> and then you can do the same thing dealing with municipal wastewater treatment plants all day, every day. No. <laughs> some people find that fascinating. It's just not not my sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, so as you're going through all the activities that you're responsible for, I mean, I was making a little list here that, you know, you have to be part botanist, you have to be part chemist, uh, part hydrologist, uh, part lawyer, part piping expert. (laughs) Uh, So what I wonder, to get things done, how much do you have to be a politician uh, in order to, uh, you know, bring these issues to people's attention and to convince them that uh, this is the right thing to do and your way Uh, is the way to uh, proceed
2: um so i think in what i did um remembering that i I, i'm not a specialized environmental engineer who works in one particular you know technical area the politician Mm -hmm. part and the negotiation is primarily what i did end up doing i think that's a huge part of it so um within mining companies you have heaps of engineers right so you have civil engineers you have mining engineers you'll have electrical engineers you'll have all sorts of um, technical people who are all trying to get material out of the ground and onto a, a ship effectively um, all trying to work together and they've all sort of got different objectives um, that they're trying to achieve so your mine planners are trying to get your ore um, whereas your electrical guys are a bit more worried about your power networks and various other things and then you've got your process engineers and um, I used to always say environmental engineers, you know, we never caused the environmental issues of the mine sites but we had to try and help people solve them. So, um, you know, I was never responsible for running trucks and I never ran the fleet and I never dug the holes and and those sorts of things Um, but I had to work with those people who did do those things who actually had the environmental effect um, and who ran the process plants um, to try and, you know, work together and, and try and get the best outcome we could. <laughs> right. And um, make sure that, you know, um, it is actually a really heavily legislated area and there's lots of um, legal requirements, but um, the, it might be different in America. But um, here a lot of the, the legal framework that you work in as well was not necessarily written with mining in mind um and so um sometimes trying to work out how to fit things around it and um what it's actually trying to achieve can be a bit of a challenge as well so um a lot of environmental issues though um is a lot of it's just about waste and efficiency Uh, And so often you would find that if you could come up with a better environmental solution, it would also be a better financial solution because you're not wasting um, fuel or energy or you've managed to optimise um, something around the pit or the plant or, um, you know, you're having less downtime, you're having less um, issues um, with um, regulators or those sorts of things. So um, Mm -hmm. often if you can get your environmental you know, side of things working. It's actually a good sign that everything else is sort of being efficient and um, working well as as well. So, um, you know, sometimes like if you you get environmental things wrong, the actual capital costs and um, the impacts down the line can be quite horrendous. So, you know, if you – don't design your bulk hydrocarbon storage facilities properly um, and you have a hydrocarbon spill, for example, the cost of remediation is far more expensive over, you know, decades um, than actually doing it right in the first place. So um, uh, it, it can make really good sense to try and work out how to, to manage it up front um, so that you don't then have to, to try and remediate um, down the track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah. another thing I did... For a while, because when we went through our iron ore boom and our mining boom here in Australia, actually, um, it's been a fair bit of time working on designing and um, you know we built a couple of brand new mines, um, mm-hmm. new railways, new ports, um, those sorts of things. Into so they call it greenfields development. I'm not sure if you have the same term over there, but um, you know, and so you. You're trying to pull on all your experience in the past of everything you've seen at different mine sites and what's worked well and what hasn't and and what do I do about um, these sorts of drainage systems and how can I do my sediment um, designs uh, for drainage and how do I do the discharge of water and um, oily water treatment systems or what sort of dust control systems do I need and trying to bring that all together with the engineers who are, looking at, um, you know, starting from scratch and how do I build this this whole mine site? Um, And then, you know, a lot of your opportunities to get the best possible outcome are are determined in that early design phase as well. So, you know, how can I site um, this uh, village or how can I site the power line or where shall we run the railway line through? So, um, you know, looking at... um, when you you put like a large long rail line through, um, what will that do to sheet flow um, from rainfall events that will then affect downstream ecosystems, you know. So how do I do um, – um, make sure that I don't interrupt that sheet flow and um, cause, you know, a decline of um, – in the plants or, um, you know, yeah. So – it's,
0: may, may, trying to minimize the ecological impact.
2: Yeah, and and you you get a lot of benefit if you can do it up front because once the thing's built, right, um, largely the life of mine environmental footprint is pretty much determined apart from a few things that will happen during the operation. Um, your, your really big benefits come from your upfront design work. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's it's kind of – Rewarding in a way <laughs> when sure. you can find sure. a really good solution up front and uh, make it work really well. So, um, one of the projects I worked on, we ended up getting an award from the state government um, to do with railway design work and um, how we tried to um, minimize impacts through drainage. Because, you know, if you can, you think about, you know, a railway line that's a hunt, well, this one was like 58 kilometers long. Um, you know, you can have a very big impact if you don't manage that well. And, and you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, um, a lot of that those sorts of considerations didn't come through. So, you know, if you're looking at railway design, you probably just go, okay, I want to get from A to B. Um, I need to think about this sort of gradient and these sorts of turns and um, curves and those sorts of things. And, and um, I need asset protection, so I need the railway not to – Wash away, but other mm-hmm. than that, that was probably as far as your sort of design requirements went. Um, and so, I guess it's changed a lot now. So you can you can with a little bit more effort get a much better um, long term outcome.
0: Sure, so. sure. Well, well. So all of these, you know, all this design upfront and uh, and additionally the remediation projects, uh, there has to be some major capital that goes into these efforts. And so I kind of wondered coming out of university was it uh was it at all intimidating the the dollar levels you were uh, being you know you were authorizing or making decisions about
2: um no so when i first got out of university cuz we call them Graduates, do you, do you have the same sort of concept? <laughs> so sure. you come out yeah. as a graduate and the graduate is always the one who gets the not-so-fun and exciting jobs. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, so a, a lot of the work I did when I was initially a grad was quite different. So um, a, a lot of it was very much field-based and um, I would get all those really stinky, horrible jobs pretty much. Um, and so, sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, I I used to spend a lot of time initially, um, you know, going around to things like monitoring um, discharges. Um, I spent about a month counting trees. (laughs) um, uh, I had one job for a while where um, I had to look after a a certain contaminated site um, and do monitoring because we were trying to do some remediation work there. Mm -hmm. and. The rest of the people in the office, they banned me from doing my monitoring run in the morning because I would come back smelling so bad from this site that um, I always had to go out and do monitoring in the afternoon and then go straight home. Um, and so, uh, yeah, initially, I guess I spent a lot more time outdoors um, right. and running around and, and, you know, I worked in remote mining areas and, um, you know, I did have some perks. So <laughs> I used to do this... Um, monitoring run where we used to go past um, and it'd take nearly all day Um, and so I'd have to go past this huge dam which had like lobster in it so on the way out I'd drop all the pots in you know, try and catch (laughs) the lobsters do the monitoring run come back with all my samples grab the pots get the the craze and stuff and then head back Um, so there were some perks um, to that sort of thing as well um, but pretty much, if it was like an outdoor, hot, stinky job, mm-hmm. um, that was what I used to do. And so those ones initially, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily very big financial decisions. Um, you're just a grad <laughs> in a way. And and a lot of that was really about trying to learn. Well, well, how do mining companies work? What's what happens in a mine? Why is it that we have this, this, and this? And how does the process work? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the earlier mines that I worked out were really um, as well. the open cut strip mining, which is, a, again, a little bit different from, you know, open pit, deep pit mining. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the, the bauxite mine, for example, that I worked out, um, you know, the mine life when I was there was something like 200-odd years worth of bauxite mining, so, um, you know, a long, long mining Um, huge ore body Um, Mm -hmm. but pretty much in that case all you're doing is just you know going around and lowering the coast of Queensland by a couple of meters because you're just taking off the top part which is bauxite and you know we had no drill and blast requirements and um, pretty much uh, you know tractors would go in first with chains and you'd remove the vegetation and then you're just sort of digging up bauxite and um so in that case the things you're looking at then for rehab again it's quite different because um you're not having to deal with these massive waste rock piles or um different landforms and how do I take this you know I haven't picked up a hill pretty much and moved the hill over here um you've just sort of slightly lowered the coastline a little bit so um yeah, so it just yeah it varied a lot but um, it wasn't really until I'd been working for quite a few years and then um, moved over to Western Australia that I sort of got a bit more involved in some of the bigger construction projects. And, um, you know, so one of the, the poor upgrades that we worked on, you know, all together, they're, they're like billion-dollar projects, right, these these mines. And so if you want to know about tough financial pressure when you're working on a big <laughs> mining project. Um, you know, we, we used to have to do dredging. So um, you had to get um, – dredges. would come in from overseas and for some reason they always seemed to come from the Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, during the boom, everything, you know, got very expensive in Australia because um, everything was in high demand and, um, you know, we had this dredge coming <laughs> – out to the northwest of Australia. And um, once you're locked in your dredge, uh, you have to start paying for it, right? And so if it arrived and we didn't have all of our necessary approvals from the government, mm-hmm. the, the standby rates for each day were, were – they weren't necessarily just tens of thousands. They were a little bit more than that. Um, wow. And so, you know, the dredging fleet has come it's, – it's on its way. And you're like, ah, I don't have all my approvals. Um, (laughs) And um, that was a bit of pressure. And um, so one of the things you do have to do when you have um, ships come into Australian waters is you have to um, uh, send divers down and they have to inspect the vessel, right? So um, we've got a lot of coral reefs and things around Australia, so they have to make sure that there's no um, marine pests that are stuck Mm -hmm. on the hull of these ships. And um, So anyway, Hmm. so – The dredge came over and the divers go down and look for it and we didn't necessarily have all the approvals yet so they couldn't actually start dredging Um, and they found these Asian green mussels. (laughs) <laughs> on, the, on the dredge, which was like the best thing ever in a way because then um, <laughs> what has to happen is uh, the dredge has to go back to Singapore and it has to get dyed, uh, dry docked and they have to like completely clean the hull and, and get right. rid of every trace ever of Asian green mussels. And so by the time the dredge came back, we, we did have everything in place and we were ready to go. <laughs> so, you know, like these tiny little Asian green mussels, it was like the best thing ever. Um So you did have some things like that 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 happened every now and then and, you know, that's kind of fun when you're dealing with um, big projects and and stuff that's really important um, in terms of your overall project success and schedule and costs. Um, You know, we had a couple uh, we'd we'd build because I guess it's very remote so the mining companies will often have to build everything. So, you know, we'll have to build the whole village that everyone lives in Sure. Um, and people sometimes forget that people make waste. And so one of the first things you actually need in a big village is you need to deal with the wastewater because uh, everyone goes to the toilet and has showers and, and stuff like that. And so, um, again, you know, I had four days to try and get a wastewater treatment plant <laughs> approved. Um, and you've got like a big holding tank and meanwhile everyone's going to the toilet and using the shower and it's starting to fill up and you're like, oh, no. Um <laughs> And, you know, so I got that done just in time. Uh, so some of those were, were quite fun and exciting because, um, I don't know, I like I like having a little bit of pressure and deadlines. Right. And, you know, being part of something that's really quite big and, and you're dealing with big things and um, big projects and big capital spend and um yeah, I think the the mining boom in Australia in sort of 06, 07 will be one of those things down the track where we're like, yeah, back in the day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you tell your little grads about it now and they're like, really? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so how does that work? Uh, we, obviously, uh, most of the mining companies are dealing in commodities. I mean, you know, diamonds, I guess, are, are a little, you know, considered a little more upscale uh, than coal. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, iron ore and coal, and you know these these commodities basically go up and down in price, and sometimes wi- wildly so. Uh, yeah. So, how
4: does, how do, how,
0: so, how, so how does that impact your career? I mean, obviously, when things are booming, uh, there's going to be a little more uh, capital available for you to do projects. When things are a little slower for the industry, I'm guessing uh, your your assignments get a little fewer, a little more sparse. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um, when I first Finished uni, um, it was on the back of there'd been a decline in coal prices and copper prices, Um, and so when I got taken on as a graduate, I was the first graduate they'd taken on for a while, and um, a lot of the people around me. So um, mining, I think uh, it it has it's like a classic boom bust type um, industry, Mm -hmm. and um, so I rocked up as like a little grad, all excited that I'd got a job with a big mining company and um you know all the people around me were like oh so and so was made redundant and this person was made redundant they'd been working for this many years and um so you you do get redundancies and you do get downturns um Mm -hmm. but since then i think um so australia's had a fairly phenomenal run on um good commodity prices and and good mining conditions for a fairly long time Mm -hmm. um minus the little tiny GFC. And a, a nice, my understanding is the GFC hit much harder in America than it did in Australia. So in Australia, the, the GFC was almost like you had a little bit of a hiccup. Um, it didn't really last very long. Um, there were some redundancies, but um, within no time flat, it was just um, boom again. Um, mm-hmm. And so you sort of go through these, these periods of – You know, so for the first sort of um, five or so years of my working, it was sort of in the build-up as we were getting over some um, really poor commodity pricing issues and then iron ore just took off. And so the reason I actually um, moved from the east coast of Australia to the west coast um, was with the company I was working with, I was having to fly back and forth all the time because suddenly all the work was – to do with iron ore, mm-hmm. and um, and and the coal companies near to me a little less, um, and the coal mines over east, and um, diamonds were sort of ticking along in the background. So um, I spent a heap of time um, living in hotel rooms and flying back and forth, and and that sort of thing in Perth and in the Pilbara, and um, you know then iron ore just took off, and and um, we were building uh, new ports and new rail. And, New mines are opening and we needed new camps and new power stations and, you know, new ball fields. And so, um, I guess another thing to keep in mind with the Pilbara is that, um, you know, the, the grid, the electricity grid is, um, you know, the, the company had its own. Um mm-hmm they built all their own power stations, um, they built all their own bore fields. So, you know, as you, you sort of want to increase your production in one area, you've then got to have the flow-on effects of, okay, well, that means we need more power and we need more water and we need more rail and we need more port capacity and we need to do then dredging. And and, and so it just kind of took off. It was heaps of fun during the boom. It was awesome. Right. <laughs> um, and... And you kind of just threw money at things to solve them um, in a way because time is money. Um, And, you know, you've got to be able to respond quite quickly when um, commodity prices are doing really well. Um, But mines are also, you know, like it takes a long time to get one up and running. Um, There's a lot involved. Um, Often you'll have to do a lot of what they call pre-strip to get even to the ore. Um, mm-hmm. So you know the, the development time frame from you know um, you actually have a confirmed ore body and you want to get it into production is really quite long um, and then even before that you 've got to have a constant pipeline of exploration sites because you 're constantly trying to find out well okay well where is the next ore body going to come from and um, how can we schedule that in there? Um, but then lo and behold um, prices change. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, at one point um, iron ore must have been about $160 a tonne. Then it dropped down to about $37 a tonne. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, very quickly um, things can change and you can find out that you've got, you know, extra capacity and production and the, the prices aren't as good as they used to be. I mean, I think the, the price of coal fell to about a third of its price as well, Um in a similar length of time and, um, you know, copper goes all over the place as well. So, right. um, you know, when you're um, dealing with prices, you know, in the 150 odd dollars a ton versus now it's down at about $40, um, that's quite a different operating uh, environment. Sure. <laughs> and, um, and, and so um, – uh, so I was actually made redundant. So you, you have redundancies happen in mining, um, sure. in November of last year. So that was about six months ago now. But, um, you know, and, um, when I went, we had about 40% of my department went and my boss went and my boss's boss went. And <laughs> and, wow. You know, um, it can, it can happen. And I think, um, I had the advantage of joining the mining industry as a graduate on the back of a um, sort of downturn. And so, you know, in my head I was always really aware um, and also having grown up in Queensland that mining does go through those cycles. But um, I think you do get some people who don't quite um, understand or appreciate that and because mining has gone so well for so long here in Australia um, as well maybe they've kind of forgotten that that happens. Right um so i guess it's one of those things you sort of gotta um you have to be a bit careful don't always assume you're going to have that behind you as well so um you know they 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 do have people who when um mining has downturns in australia they um they get into a bit of um you know it's not a good time hey and um redundancies kind of suck Um, but but, um you sort of always have to have your backup plan too and and, um, be mindful of that and i think if you go in with your eyes open about the fact that mining can be a bit like that um I, i think it's actually it's a fascinating area to work in like i i absolutely love it it's um very exciting everything's very big um you know i one of our mine sites was automated so you know you're dealing with these 930e like massive haul trucks that are driving themselves right like literally Mm -hmm. there is no one driving this haul truck and it's got 220 tons of dirt on the back of it right and um it's just you know running like clockwork and you know you'll have someone who's sitting one and a half thousand kilometers away running the whole mine site, almost like it's on a computer game so so mining, in terms of the scale of it and um, the technology and um, the the investment, is huge, and it's it's a great place to work. But um, you just have to be a bit mindful that those sorts of things can happen, um, and then have Plan B.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, plan always, B. Oh, always good to have Plan B, and <laughs> and as Brian says, soon followed by Plan C, D, and E. Yep.
2: Yes, that's right. And then after you yeah. get to Z, you've then got to learn another alphabet and maybe move to Greek <laughs> or something.
3: You just <laughs> nu- You start adding numbers after. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: Plan A one B one.
4: Yeah.
0: Right. Well, I tell you what, Braun, we've have uh, uh, taken up a a good portion of uh, your morning here, and certainly appreciate your willingness to uh, share some stories with us. Uh, mm-hmm. Any any advice you might have for engineering students thinking about going into the field of environmental engineering?
2: Um, I think it's an awesome thing to do. I think one of the things with environmental engineering is there's so many different sectors you can work into and industries. Um, so there's probably something for everyone, but um, I think it's increasingly Um, it's becoming really, really important. So what is our environmental impact? And I think it's a real sort of growth area. And, you know, every day I went to work like I loved it because I knew I was doing something of value that was actually trying to um, help and, you know, recognising that we all use um, products that come from mines. We might be very far removed from the fact that they do come from mines. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, my ability then to use engineering to try and help Make that better with you know, wake up every day and go to work and you love it and you're doing something worthwhile and have a purpose and you know, that's that's fantastic so yes, I definitely think it's well worth looking at
0: terrific terrific and if if uh, somebody should uh, want to get a hold of you or have uh, questions for you, is there uh, any contact info we can provide uh,
2: I do have a LinkedIn profile, so um, I'm not sure if you've got that
0: I do. We can put that in the show notes.
2: Yep, Rowan Bell. And then um, I've also got my email as well. So um, it's just Billson.bell at gmail.com. So maybe you can put that in there as well. Um, but, yeah, really happy to help talk to people if they're interested. Um, one of the things I did get to do a lot of is hire a lot of graduates and I had quite a big team at one stage. Um, and so I quite like helping and mentoring people. And um, helping them find their way. So, yeah, cool.
0: Fantastic. Well, it has been a delight to uh, to speak with you and and to learn a little more about the field of, of uh, you know the fields of mining and environmental engineering. And, and we certainly appreciate your uh, your time with us this evening.
2: Okay. Cool.
1: Excellent. Thanks, H. We expect a suitcase full of diamonds as payment. <laughs> we can work out the
0: details later. Fantastic. Uh, Well, Bronwyn, thank you you so much for uh, joining us on The Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.